Hello, and welcome to the IQT podcast. I'm Dylan George, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, as a co-host for a special B-Next series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts, and what we need to improve these capabilities. Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode. Hi, everybody. I'm Dylan George, a VP at BeNext, which is a biodefense initiative from IQT focused on preparing for and mitigating biological threats that impact national security. And here with me today is my co-host, Caitlin Rivers, who's a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, Caitlin, how are you doing today? All right. Same as everyone, I think. Just hanging in there. <laughs> yes, as best we can. Agreed. Yeah. In a previous podcast, Caitlin and I talked about the challenges and benefits of outbreak analytics and forecasting. In this podcast, we would like to discuss how to supercharge these capabilities and scale them so many jurisdictions, state, local, global, can benefit from them. Both Caitlin and I have been proponents of developing a concept that we call the Center for Epidemic Forecasting and Analytics. This would be an agency, something like the Weather Service, but for infectious diseases. But you may ask yourself, what is this center of epidemic forecasting and analytics? What would it do? How would it make response efforts better? And what would be the critical components and why is it needed? Today, we're going to dig into this topic. So Caitlin, as a recap, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting, or, or rather, what is outbreak science? It's really about using modeling and analytics to help understand whether an outbreak is happening, how bad is it, what should we expect, and what should we do about it. It's really about taking those insights, which are largely academic or have been historically, and bringing them into public health practice so that public health decision makers can do their best work and make the best decisions with the information that they have at hand. And incidentally, we did a previous podcast where we discussed this topic in more detail. So if you want to better understand what we're talking about and what gaps and opportunities we see in the field, that would be a great place to catch up. Yeah. So a lot of people have been talking about weather forecasting and the weather forecasting experience. And I, I think that, uh, you know, both you and I have talked about this a lot as well. In fact, we have written a couple of papers about this. And I think there's, there's a handful of things that we can learn from the weather forecasting uh, experience. And, and one of the things that I find most compelling is that there's, this, there's a chart that has been developed for numerical weather forecasting to think about for what they refer to as forecasting skill. Essentially, it's a metric of how good is the forecast. And we've seen um, there's a well-known chart of looking at um, forecasting skill through time. So it's like on the x-axis, you would have time. On the y-axis, you'd have forecasting skill. And over the past you know, 30, 40, 50 years, Years, that forecasting skill has improved through time. And the thing that has been really interesting is to think about, well, 
how has that forecasting skill for weather forecasting increased through time? Well, it's been a, a function of a couple things. It's been a function of improving data. You know, we've gotten better satellites, we've gotten uh, weather buoys, we've gotten uh, weather stations across different continents. We've gotten better at the actual modeling process. So how to do the analytics. We've, more people have been put into place to actually do this sort of thing. And then we've gotten really good at operationalizing these models in some particular capacity. And then also, I mean, everybody has seen this, although it's less of a function nowadays, but back when we only had three sorts of um, uh, nightly newscasts on the broadcast, you had meteorologists that actually interpreted the weather from those models so that locals could make decisions. There's critical key components of science, technology, personnel, and interpretation that are needed to move these particular capacities going forward. And so one of the things that, you know, Caitlin and I have been thinking about is this idea of how do we actually learn from weather forecasting and apply it to infectious disease forecasting and try to build a similar sort of capacity in a center for infectious disease forecasting or a center for epidemic forecasting and analytics. But I think it's a good description, though, too. It's like, Caitlin, you know, uh, how has this been, how has this kind of field of outbreak science been how is it being done today? And how are forecasts, because we've seen a handful of them with, with COVID-19 uh, being talked about in the press and in particular places in the, in the uh, government and public health agencies, how is this being done today? Right now, most infectious disease models that are, are used in public health practice are actually developed in academia by academics who are volunteering their time to do this work because they see how important it is to improving the public health response. And those results are either offered um, kind of through informal uh, relationships or even through the academic literature. And so the connection between the people doing the work and the people using the work is not as strong as I think it could be. And we're seeing that too, that it's not just academics, it's also journalists who are doing a ton around aggregating data and interpreting data for the public. I think that's a really important function as well that's again being done largely as a volunteer function. Now, in addition to academics and people outside the government community, there are a few really excellent groups within government who do this work and have been doing it for a long time. There are people at NIH, people at HHS, CDC, who are really expert in this. The problem is that there's not enough of them. And so when there is a crisis, they just don't have enough personnel and enough expertise on site to be able to surge to meet the demands. And it's not just also the, the health experts and the health related agencies that need this kind of support during public health emergencies. It's not just CDC making decisions. It's also the State Department and DOD and the Department of Education. And so we also see a need for uh, experts who can support the range of interagency efforts. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, the other thing that's been really surprising to me, though, too, is if we go back to this weather for um, analogy, and um, when we start thinking about severe weather events like hurricanes or tornadoes, the, the exact what you're describing right here is like, thank goodness we have the academics, the journalists, the volunteers that are going forth and bringing that data and aggregating it and analyzing it in some way. Thank goodness we have them. But when we start thinking about hurricanes or other severe weather like that, that's not how we do it. We don't, when a hurricane comes barreling down on us, we don't ask a haphazard group of academics or journalists to help us start thinking through, well, where might it hit? Where's the landfall going to happen? Where would we might actually put the best resources so that we could recover very quickly and save lives and, and property? 
you know, we have dedicated people at the National Hurricane Center. We have people at the National Weather Service. We have people at FEMA to interpret these things, to actually forecast where landfall will happen. What is the severity of the hurricane and what would be the path that it might take so that people can make the decisions, get out of the way, and then also we can galvanize as a government to move forward. You know, and so we need to think anew and we think need to think transformatively about what could be done in this in this particular space. I think what you're describing about how we organize our efforts in adjacent fields is so important because right now it doesn't feel like we have the best organization. But it's also striking to me, going back to the weather example, that we need to be charting a course and setting a vision for where we want to be. Weather did not get from being a coin flip to the accuracy that we enjoy today on accident. That was a really um, sustained investment and um, sustained vision in where we want to be in 10, 20, 30 years. And I think we should be doing more of that for infectious disease modeling as well. I couldn't agree more. And you know, Having that sustained, having that strong vision and that sustained effort is so critical in moving this forward. You know, in in terms of like other critical components, what are the other critical components that we should be thinking about to actually actualize that particular kind of a vision? We talked about in our previous podcast how important data is both to public health practice, the boots on the ground public health practice, but also to making sure that the making sure that the models and analytics that we're producing are the best they can be. And I think I said before that all roads lead back to data, and it's really so true. I think that is a critical component. I think it's also yeah. about advancing the science. There are not that many people, even in academia, who specialize very specifically in the kinds of models that we use during infectious, emerging infectious disease events and infectious disease emergencies. So I think there's still a lot we can learn about what methods and approaches are best suited to the kinds of questions that come up in, in a public health emergency with a disease that we don't know a lot about. So those are two things, data advancing the science. A third is operationalizing models and engineering models. Right now, most models are bespoke. When there is a an emergency, they're spun up from scratch basically because every every outbreak is different, every setting is different, but I think there could be some work done to abstract that a little bit and to make it so that we have some components on the shelf, if you will, that we could spin up when when we do have um, a need. So those are three things. And I think the fourth thing is developing a better understanding of how we can explain results and how we can make those results more actionable and more intuitive for decision makers. Modelers and math people, if you will, have a very specific way of understanding and explaining the work that they're doing. And that doesn't always resonate with the people who need to make use of those results. And so I think, again, we could be doing a lot more to figure out how best to structure that relationship and how to tailor our communication so that we're communicating in a way that's really impactful for our listeners. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. And during COVID, I've been trying to help out, as as I know that you have as well, Caitlin, um, trying to help out with various governors and mayors and trying to help them make particular decisions and, and you know, trying to explain results from some modeling groups it it become can be very abstract and then trying to translate it into it's like what are the specific decisions that you need to make is not as straightforward and and, um, some of our colleagues could make it easier if they had a better understanding of of what were the decisions uh frameworks that people were um kind of operating under 
And interestingly enough, again, we we talked about this in the previous podcast about um, this disconnect between the modeling community and the decision makers, not not for lack of wanting to have more connection, but because uh, it hasn't been uh, a concerted effort over the, the past while to actually make that happen. And this is definitely an area that uh, a critical component that needs to, to happen. You know, the uh, the other th- thing here, though, too, that I would definitely footstop in, in, in some of your comments, though, too, is that the data, you know, it's it is the critical component we need it is the thing that it, that we struggle with and that's why it's like having for this this concept of a of a center for epidemics forecasting and analytics to succeed we would have to have a very strong relationship with public health agencies cdc state and local public health to actually make this and have it be beneficial to them there's no doubt about it that it would has to be this is not an academic exercise this is a way of trying to save life and, and livelihoods in a more systemic way going forward. So I mean, one of the things that a lot of people have always asked us about when we're when we've been talking about this concept though too is this kind of like counterfactual. It's like what could have been done if this center were there at the get-go. And you know for for me anyway, it's like when I answer when I try to answer this question though too, it's like and I'd love to get your 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 feedback on this Caitlin though too is like when I've had been confronted with that question, it's like I I again revert to this weather analogy. You know, when with weather forecasts out there, when we see that it might be an 80% chance of rain tomorrow, I know what to do with that information. I will grab my umbrella or grab a raincoat. And if I'm going to be outside, I will take that with me. And so I can change my personal behavior based on the understanding of the risks from those forecasts uh, for just weather. And also there's an intuition and a, and a knowledge base of how to use those forecasts as well for in different quality forecasts. For example, if there's a important date two weeks out from now, and I'm tracking the weather for some reason on that particular date, if it says there's an 80% chance of rain two weeks from now, it's like, uh, that's something I will stick in my brain and start thinking, do I need to think about how to change or, or come up with alternatives uh, for whatever events I'm going to be doing on that day? But I don't really aggressively change those behaviors until I get closer because I know the uncertainty associated with those forecasts over two weeks is pretty significant and things will change as data and the forecast change over time. So we've built up this intuition of how to use weather forecasts to modify our behavior to mitigate the risks associated with severe weather events. Now, uh, go, go ahead. I agree with the examples you you gave, but I also always return to the the idea or the concept that we don't always anticipate all of the different ways that innovation will change our lives and how yeah. how what will become available that we're not even really able to imagine right now. Like weather forecasting started, as I understand it, as a way to protect people from major storms and disasters, and also to help with commerce-related activities, like making sure ships aren't lost at sea. But we see now that the use case has expanded to a whole range of things that the original weather forecasters could not have even imagined, like how we tailor flight patterns very specifically to weather to make sure that airlines are on time as close as they can be. And that's just not something we ever really could have anticipated. And so I do think that there will be a lot of uses that come out of infectious disease forecasting that we're not even really able to enumerate right now. No, can't can't agree more. Yeah, totally agree. You know, and and I think though that's like with that weather forecasting kind of idea. And should I grab an umbrella or not? Though, imagine being able to anticipate disease risk for a community over the next month. And how could families living there use that information um, to mitigate their risk? For example, like keeping their kids uh, safer in schools or not. And what are these? You know, 
what are the small things that could be done by families to lower their risk given you know changes in that risk over time and obviously the messages of public health interventions likely won't change that much um, but having knowing the severity and intensity with which they should actually mitigate their their, their personal behavior or the behavior of their families I think is going to be critically useful for moving forward and so the, the hope is that to have that type of forecasting that we're talking about to enable those sorts of changes. But how have you kind of confronted that, that question of, you know, the, the counterfactual? How, how could the center really be helped? I think all of the examples you gave are spot on. And I also just keep returning to this idea that we might be making use of data and analytics and models right now, but are we doing it as best as we could? Is this the best possible way to approach the series of questions. I think you mentioned earlier that we don't approach weather like this. We don't approach the military like this. We have institutions and strategic visions and very concerted efforts to make those functions the best that they can possibly be. And I'm not sure we're at that point right now with infectious disease modeling and with outbreak science. And so it's really motivating to me to think about uh, all of the different ways that we could see returns by better structuring these interactions make sure that everybody is set up to do their best work. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm also struck with, you know, there's been a lot of discussion recently about um, how to apply what's referred to as digital health, um, you know, using wearables on a person's uh, body to do different metrics or to use bringing together different electronic health records more effectively to get better data and having it transferred over to the public health sector so that the public health can use what they refer to as electronic case reports so that they can move things forward more effectively. You know, having that kind of general understanding of how the data is flowing and, and um, building it up more, more effectively, there's been a lot of discussion about what they call as predictive population health. Um, this is a very similar concept to what we're talking about here, but instead of trying to help people with chronic decision, you know, chronic health decisions, we're trying to use predictive analytics to help with infectious disease dynamics and understand that risk and move these things forward. So I think it's a very similar sort of concept that's being discussed in, in a slightly different language in different places. But when, we're t when we think about the economic disruption, the amount of resources the federal government has outlaid up to over $3 trillion to try to fight COVID-19, trying to think more effectively of how do we take, how do we move from population-based mitigation efforts where we lock down a whole community or state to become much, much more precise in the way we're applying these particular public health interventions to really understand who's at risk how is it being transmitted within a community so we can mitigate the economic impacts more effectively and really zero in on where the virus is spreading in a community? We need to get much, much better at going from um, these blunt force instruments like uh, uh, stay-at-home mandates to targeting where it's happening, you know, like in the 15 to 29 year olds right now is where it's moving forward. Previously, it was in congregate settings like meatpacking plants and long-term health healthcare facilities. All of those are still concerning, but knowing how to move that forward and to be much more precise in how we're going forward, this is kind of at the heart of, uh, I think, of where we're trying to go and where we're trying to push forward this idea of better analytics so we can get much more precise in our public health uh, application of interventions. And we're thinking about it a lot right now in the context of COVID-19, but of course, this is a fortunately fairly rare event, but we face similar questions all the time. Seasonal influenza comes up every year, 
And we're a little bit habituated to it. And so we don't think of it as being a gigantic risk, but it actually is. Every year it strains our healthcare systems. There's um, impacts to the economy when people are not able to go to work. And so as we develop these capabilities and we think about it as kind of on the high end scenarios, there's also a lot of room to better implement these strategies and control efforts with the kind of threats that we face more regularly. And I think we could see really important returns from those as well. When we've been talking about this uh, from a different, a lot of different quarters as well, is there's been a lot of discussion about, isn't this the CDC's job? Uh, Why can't they do it? And that sort of thing. And I think that, you know, I think you would agree, Caitlin, though, too. It's like, we firmly believe that CDC needs to be intimately involved with this. They need to be a major stakeholder. They need to be driving a lot of these discussions and bringing this kind of capability into fruition without the involvement of public health agencies at the state and local level and at the federal level, this would not succeed. Uh, And so we are firm believers that the CDC needs to be exceptionally involved in this. I mean, one of the challenges that we're definitely experiencing, you know, when I was in the federal government, I I experienced quite a bit. And, and, you know, when you were working in the federal government as well, is that it's really challenging to bring in data technologies into the federal government. It's a well-known problem across the federal government to try to use data technologies and data scientists to uh, address particular problems. And so the CDC is, you know, is 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 it no exception uh, and so they, they they have that challenge as well and so this idea of the center for epidemic forecasting and analytics is a way to try to bring more resources to the fight to help them do their job uh, in a much more, more targeted way and then also um, as we talked about before is to really help the state and local decision makers where the real authorities for um, these these actions and these interventions really lies to help them have better information so that they can know how to use these interventions more effectively and more precisely. And so, but you know, that's that's one of the ways that I've tried to answer that question as well, because we see that our our colleagues in the CDC as as critical components in moving this forward. And just to underscore one really important point that you made is that the state and local health departments are really on the front lines. They are having to make really difficult decisions every day and largely without the sorts of modeling and analytics support that we are describing that we think would be so helpful to, to guiding these decisions. And so I think they are such an important stakeholder for envisioning how these capabilities would be used and how it would translate into public health practice. Yeah. And, you know, the last thing, though, too, is like, you know, we had talked about this before, is that data is central. Data is the critical component here. And so um, one, another kind of critical question that we've had in the past as well is if the data are so poor in public health, how will better analytics really help? And how, I mean, how have you kind of addressed that, that particular question? Well, even when the data aren't great, I think modeling and analytics can be so useful for bringing together the data we do have and making it into something greater than the sum of its parts. It can really stretch the data further than it might be able to stand on its own, if you will. But I think part of what what you and I have argued for in the past is the strategic vision about how all of these different pillars and components can all be advanced and all come together to build a, a more futuristic and more innovative capability. And so even though there's a lot more we could be doing now with the data that we do have, We're also trying to put forth, again, this vision for how, if we're able to advance all of these priorities, we could build something really great. 
Now, and, and we've really talked about it largely from a domestic perspective in the United States, though. It's like and how to help state and locals in the United States make decision making. And, and obviously, the COVID-19 has significantly colored our thinking. And, and because we've been trying to help out governors and mayors with some particular decision making and in the United States, primarily, it's it, it colors a lot of our discussion and a lot of our thinking. But Clearly, this kind of component or this kind of a capacity could be very useful in a global context as well. You know, similar to how weather forecasting moved from a very local, regional sort of capability to a global capacity, we're thinking along the same sorts of lines. It's like, a, you know, I, I think about it from a long time ago when I was working as a civilian in the Department of Defense and was trying to help out create more uh, improved malaria incidence maps and working with really wonderful colleagues like uh, Dr. Simon Hay, who's now at the University of Washington, but at, at the time he was at Oxford, and they were trying to come up with these new methods of coming up with modeling malaria incidents and then trying to infer from areas where you had really rich data uh, in malaria incidence data to places where you didn't have very good data. And so they came up with really beautiful geospatial sorts of analytical capabilities to actually do that. So it was a new modeling component. And then it was new kind of computational capabilities because it was one of the first kind of research components that we put together on AWS at the time. And so not only do we have better modeling capabilities, better computational power and better data to create these maps, we found that having the edge effect. And so when you just looked at a particular locality, you could get really good estimates just in that particular you know, country or in particular subnational section of that country. But when you got on the edge, it was very uncertain what those estimates were. But once you added more data from surrounding countries, you got much better estimates going forward. And so it's a long way of saying is that the more data and the more people to participate in this kind of endeavor, the better the forecasting will be for everyone involved. Um, and it goes back to that same, you know, that, that kind of standard way of saying a threat anywhere is a risk everywhere. And definitely this is something that could be applied in a global context as well. I heard you tell that malaria story before, and one of the other impacts that you've shared previously that really stuck with me is that once people see how their data can come together into a really useful yeah. product, it motivates them to contribute more and to really see how data can be translated into really valuable um, decision-making um, analyses. And I think that's really powerful too. Yeah, I think that that virtuous cycle of, you know, contributing your data, seeing it actually being used by an organization that has developed analytics that provides something back to you that you weren't able to develop on your own, but it's actually helps you make decision making in a different way so that you're more motivated to give more data to the process because it benefits you directly. Uh, establishing that kind of a virtuous cycle is something that we would need to, would would be critical for this to be successful uh, going forward as well. So as you can see, uh, Caitlin and I are very excited about this idea of a Center for Epidemic Forecasting and Analytics. Um, if you would like to read more about these ideas that Caitlin and I have been discussing, there are a few places that you can take a look at some of the, the concepts that we've put together. The most recent of those is a piece that Caitlin and I put together in Foreign Affairs in an article entitled, how to forecast outbreaks and pandemics. America needs the contagion equivalent of the National Weather Service. With that, I think we'll conclude. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Thanks for listening. Be safe, be well, and be healthy. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode as a part of the Be Next Outbreak Analytics and Forecasting series. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean to be kept up to date on new episodes. For more information on Be Next, visit www.bnext.org. A special thank you to Carrie Sessing and the absolutely wonderful Kristen Zender from IQT's marketing team and to our friends at HeartCast Media for serving as our recording studio. Thanks for listening and take care.